Yeah, so you want to know how to make oat milk, right? Yeah, because I, I like drink a lot of it and I'm using so many Tetra packs and I also don't want to go shopping so much because of COVID. I make all my own products. I make all my own crackers, bread, you know, milk, facial pro beauty products, bath products. I make all of that. If you as an individual really accept the shame and blame, haven't you bought into the plastic industry's favorite narrative? I think it's really critical to, to, to emphasize that we have to stop making disposable plastic products. Welcome to Plastisphere, the podcast on plastics, people and the planet. My name is Anja Krieger. And I'm Brooke Bowman. So let's see what we collected in our trash bin in the past week or so. So that's me in July 2020. So, uh, I want to try to see what kind of items I have and how I could reduce that. I actually did my first waste audit last year for Plastic Free July during the pandemic. And most of our plastic trash ends up in the packaging bin. So we have several Tetra Pucks for oat milk, which we've started to drink after stopping to drink cow milk. So as you can hear, I found quite a bunch of these oat milk containers. Those are one, two, three. These Tetra Pucks, which can be composed of several layers of paper, aluminum and plastics. And they are pretty hard to separate and recycle. Only the paper is recovered in Germany. So we have eight Tetra Pak and that's 380 grams then. Two cans of peeled tomatoes, 120 grams. And what else? So we have packaging bags for pasta. We have torchette, we have rigatoni, linguine, feta cheese, ricotta cheese, Ugh, nuts and dried fruit, rice noodles, buckwheat soba noodles. This was lemongrass, obviously, and then a bag of chips. It's good to know that even the producer of a plastics podcast can't resist a bag of chips. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to resist, but it's really hard, especially during the pandemic. We also bought a lot more food last year because we worked and cooked at home all the time. Mm, totally. Um, so you had mentioned that in your waste audit, you found these Tetra packs, which were made of several layers of plastics, paper, and aluminum. Uh, did you ever try to find an alternative to them? Yeah, we tried. We looked for alternative products in the store. We got our oat milk in glass bottles, but this oat milk turned out to be super expensive. And I also remembered Kate Nelson, who calls herself the plastic-free mermaid, She's a big influencer on social media, and I met her at a conference in Amsterdam. I haven't used single-use plastics for a decade. I, I learned about this uh, when I was in California years ago and met Charles Moore, Captain Charles Moore, who discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and um, was just shocked and horrified and thought, of all the things impacting the planet, plastic is something that I could give up to just completely eliminate my contribution to that pollution source. And she told me about all these things she was making herself. Crackers, bread, milk, facial, beauty products, bath products. She said she makes all of that. 
And when I got home from the conference, I checked out her YouTube and I found a recipe to make oat milk. So that's where we got the idea that we could just make our own instead of buying it. That's a great idea. I mean, when you think about it, it's mostly water. Right. So you decided to refuse this packaging for this product altogether by making your own, right? Right. So we basically decided to change the process and not the material. But that actually turned out to be quite a challenge because my partner, Dorian, he had some expectations for this oat milk to fulfill. We have a classic Italian espresso machine at home and he really loves to drink coffee. So he needed to find a recipe for oat milk that you can foam for cappuccino. Mm, that's a high bar. Did he end up finding the perfect recipe? <laughs> yeah, well, it got quite complex, I must say. At some point, I lost track of, you know, all the things he tried. He looked at a lot of recipes online, all these tutorials, and then he started ordering tools and ingredients. So you can imagine the mailman rang our bell and we got several things delivered. First, it was a big kitchen blender. Then uh, came a little hemp bag to filter the milk. Then little containers with special enzymes to convert the starch in, in the oats into sugars. And yeah, it just became really nerdy. Um, but it was all worth it because in the end, the oat milk turned out really great. Could you share the recipe with us? Yeah, I, I actually had the chance to record it because my friend Luisa, she got really curious about our oat milk and she asked Dorian how to make it. And then they, the two got together on the phone, which of course for me was a great chance to record. Yeah, so you want to know how to make oat milk, right? Yeah, because I... I like drink a lot of it and I'm I'm also really picky with my oat milk so I feel like oh, okay. I've had like bad experiences um, buying some that taste either like sugar water or mm -hmm. just like water <laughs> and so mm -hmm. and I'm using so many tetra packs and I also don't want to go shopping so much because of COVID so I figured it would be cool to try to make it myself. Yeah, right. So I was also trying to get rid of all the Tetra Pak uh, packaging. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, and it, it worked. Uh, but it's a, it's a lot of work. So during the, the week, you know, you, I, I use it for coffee all the time. And uh -huh. so I, I think I drink about two liters per week uh -huh. or so. And wow. then <laughs> you have to like make it twice a week or once a week if you make two liters at once. So... Yeah, it's a new chore I have to do. <laughs> okay. Wait, so when you're saying it's a lot of work, how much work? Like, I mean, I think in the beginning it took me like, um, I don't know, half an hour to, to make one liter. But now I'm, I've practiced a lot and so it's a little bit faster. Okay. But yeah, it takes some time and you have to get used to it. So okay. yeah, sometimes when I'm tired in the evening and I know, oh, I'm running out of oat milk. Damn, I have to make more oat milk. And then it's like, oh, no, I want to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I guess you have to sort of work it in as a break and you can listen to podcasts while making it or something. That's a great idea. Yeah, right. I think I've actually seen Dorian do that recently, listen to podcasts while making milk in the evening. 
And I must say, I really admire his persistence doing that twice a week now. I won't play the whole conversation because it's too long, but he explained his steps to Luisa in detail. Um, okay, so can I just summarize it back to you and you tell me if it's correct? Uh-huh. Okay, so I, I put basically a cup of oats with um, water and enzymes. I let that sit for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, then I strain the oats, I guess in just like a normal sieve or something, like a, just a normal, yeah. okay. Um, and with a little bit of water uh, to just get the enzymes off. Then I put the oats and um, about a liter of water and three teaspoons of sunflower oil and some maple syrup and some vanilla um, extract all into the blender. Then I mm -hmm. blend for 15 seconds. Then I take that mixture and um, strain it with a nut bag. And then I become a perfectionist at um, straining it so it doesn't end up all over my kitchen. Um, and then I just pour it into like a glass bottle and then I have my oat, oat, uh, oat milk. Yeah, that's it. That's uh, that's it. I I take uh, three tablespoons of oil, not teaspoons. Ah, okay, but okay, okay. Yeah. Tablespoons. Okay, that's good. But everything else was uh, perfect. <laughs> okay, great. So that's the recipe, and we're having this milk every day now. Awesome. So, was there anything else you changed after your waist audit? Yeah, we also started making our own pasta. We got a pasta maker. Um, as you heard in the waste audit, I found a lot of pasta packaging when going through our trash. So I ordered this old-fashioned looking little machine with a hand crank. And it's really easy to make your own pasta. It's as fast as if you buy it, you know, if you make pre-made pasta. And it's so delicious. We love to make it with fresh pesto. And that's just really delicious. Mm, yeah, no, I have a really fond memory as a kid. Um, my family went to the beach and we laid out some pasta that we had cranked out on a broom handle mm. across a couple chairs. So it's a great activity. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say it was a good excuse to finally get my pasta maker. Yeah. And I know that if you don't want to make your own pasta, there are these supermarkets that you can go to where you can buy it unpackaged in bulk um, and you make sure to bring your own containers too. Yeah, that's actually something I'd like to do more in the future. Uh, we have several stores nearby where we could buy oats, nuts, pasta, and many other things without the packaging. So it would be super easy to just pack the containers and go there. But I haven't been that organized yet, I must admit. Yeah, in, in my area, bulk shopping got harder because of COVID restrictions. But during the pandemic, I also had a revelation. I realized that ice cream cones are the best model for takeout because you get to eat the vessel that your food comes in. And so I feel like I would love to see more innovations in takeout food that revolve around this concept. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Basically, the cone is the packaging yes. with ice cream. Yeah, totally. And I've seen bowls made out of bread, so you can eat soup out of them, which is kind of another example of this concept. Um, but anyways, besides homemade oat milk and pasta, 
What else have you got? Any other changes that you've made in the last year? Yeah, uh, I have one more. We always listen to a German radio station called Cosmo in our kitchen because they have really great music. But they also have sustainability tips with a woman called Shia Su. Uh, Shia runs a blog called Wasteland Rebel, which is all about simple life hacks to reduce your trash. And so one day in the fall, she shared her process of making her own laundry detergent from horse chestnuts. You find them in the fall around chestnut trees. And the special thing about them is that they contain uh, saponin, which can act as a soap. That's that's super cool. I would have loved to have been the person who discovered that. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're just rediscovering it now. I, I think it's empowering in a way. You know, you just uh, go out in the fall, collect several cotton bags full of these beautiful chestnuts. Um, and then I had our new blender to crush them into pieces. And I just basically let them sit in the sun for a few days. They were, you know, little crumbs, almost like a like a cereal or something like that. And when the crumbs were completely dry, I just filled them into big mason jars. And now I can just use chestnut laundry detergent whenever I want. Um, I just pour hot water over them and then that releases the saponines. And then I sieve out the chestnut crumbs. Oh, that's awesome. And so what's been the overall impact of these changes? Is your plastic packaging been pretty much empty now? No, of course not. We're still taking out <laughs> lots of trash. Um, our packaging bin got a bit lighter because the Tetra packs, they were actually pretty heavy and they made up around a third of our waste in weight. So the bin is a little lighter, but I would say for a real zero waste lifestyle where, where all your plastic trash is supposed to fit in a mason jar or that's the aspirational goal, um, for that, we would need to do so much more. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I think there are a couple of projects that I would like to do next. But I also think that there's only so much a consumer can do. Um, as we heard, you know, just one, just replacing one product already requires so much research, time and money that it's really a privilege, I guess. Right, Yeah. And in my previous podcast series, Guilty Plastics, that was really my big question. Who is responsible for tackling plastic pollution? Is it individuals, businesses, or governments? And I mean, if you as an individual really accept the shame and blame, haven't you bought into the plastic industry's favorite narrative? They promote this idea that it's on consumers and communities to make this change. And then while we're completely absorbed by changing our lives and finding the best recipes for oat milk, the corporations just peacefully continue to produce more plastic and make a profit off of it. That is a very good point. Yeah, on your question of responsibility, I mean, it's tricky, but... Definitely, I think the question is, has it really been the consumers who wanted all that packaging and all those disposable items? And was this throwaway culture we live in really just a demand that the companies fulfilled? Or is it something that has also been pushed onto the markets to make a profit? And maybe it's a mixture of both, but I think it's important to understand what direction we are going now. There were these two studies recently in Science Magazine and they looked at the future on a global scale. Like, how will the plastic pollution problem develop 
under different assumptions. And what were the results? Well, of course, these studies came up with very complex scenarios. But I think for me, the bottom line was that we need to act quickly and with determination. And we need all hands on deck to solve this issue. Because if plastics production continues to grow, it will be hard to keep up with it. Um, I had the chance to speak to the lead author of one of the studies, Dr. Stephanie Burrell, and she and her team looked at the amount of plastics that could be entering rivers, lakes, and the ocean um, in the coming years. They found that if we don't take action and if we carry on business as usual, the amount could increase significantly. It's pretty dire. We, <laughs> we will probably see somewhere between 30 and, and 90 million metric tons um, entering the environment every year by 2030 if we continue um, down the trajectory that we're on now. And just to put this in perspective, 90 million metric tons, so the highest estimate, that would be the same weight as about 8,900 Eiffel Towers which is three times as much plastic ending up in water ecosystems than the scientists estimate for today. And that is year by year. That's quite overwhelming to think about. But aren't there ways to reduce plastic pollution now? Uh, I've heard that like the, our oceans commitments, the G7 plastics charter, the UN resolutions, hopefully all these commitments would be able to change this dire path to the better, right? Yeah, yeah, you would think so. So the business as usual scenario was just the worst case, assuming that all these political plans would fail. But Steph Burrell and the other scientists also modeled what would happen if the plans succeeded. So what can we expect if current commitments to reduce plastic pollution were actually successfully implemented by all countries? And so we went, ran that scenario and it we were a little bit surprised when it came out with 20 to 53 million metric tons, given that when we applied those commitments, it wasn't just for the countries who said that they were going to do that. We actually applied them to all of the countries. Wow. So basically, if all goes well and every country fulfills current commitments, we will still have a huge problem on our hands. Right. And you have to think that 2030 is only nine years away. You know, it's not as though the world isn't trying to act on this issue. But unfortunately, it just appears that that we consume too much, we're producing too much. What's entering the environment is just it's just too much for the ability to manage it all. Mm-hmm. So if the current political commitments aren't enough, what do we need to do? Did the researchers have an answer to that? Yeah, they they tried to answer it by making their scenarios more and more ambitious. So, for example, they calculated how much effort it would take to only add 8 million metric tons of plastics to uh, water ecosystems each year by 2030. And the result was that even that will be a huge challenge. So we will really have to ramp up global efforts on all levels. Um, that includes waste reduction, you know, so reduce waste management, including recycling, but also, you know, other other ways of waste management and cleanup because a lot of plastics are already in the environment. Mm. 
a future where only 8 million tons of plastics enter the waterways each year. Right. You know, is that even an acceptable target that we keep adding so much? Um, I asked Steph and she said she and her collaborators had tried to stay realistic. You can say, well, yeah, we need to manage 100% of our waste. Obviously, that would be amazing and and that's what we should aim for. But the reality is, is that it, it's impossible to get to that point within nine years, um, given the current political situation around the world. Mm. But can't we be more ambitious? Like, what if we wanted to get down to four, two million tons of plastic going into the oceans and rivers each year, or even to zero? Well, of course, I also asked Steph about that, and she actually did have a few ideas beyond the scenarios. So here's her full answer. I don't think it's impossible. It's, it's if we have the political willpower to actually implement the things that need to, to happen. I think it's really critical to, to, to emphasize that we have to stop making disposable plastic products. We have to stop putting this, this material in the system if it cannot be reused, if it cannot be turned into something useful that's not going to end up as waste. And unfortunately, the thing about plastics is that um, you can only recycle it so many times. It has so many um, chemical additives in it, which makes it really difficult to re remake into plastic food packaging or other things without posing a, a health risk. Um, we have to continue to use plastics in some way or another, you know, medical um, procedures and things like that um, and, and medical applications. It's, it's really important to have plastic materials that are sterile and they have improved the lives of many, many people. But what we modelled was the amount of waste that we're producing. So we need to think about making the people who produce plastics responsible for the waste product that they produce. So that could entail making um, production standards around the types of plastic materials that mean instead of having a recycling symbol with 12 different numbers on it, there is only one or two different numbers um, or three different numbers and they all have to have the capacity to be recycled. And then those producers also need to um, help build the facilities in the the infrastructure to have that material recycled and reused in a, in a responsible way. We can't keep dumping it in landfills. Um, space is already at a premium. Um, we can't keep shipping it to Southeast Asia and other poor countries to deal with because it's just, that's unethical, it's immoral and it's unfair. We can limit, you know, thinking about carbon cap and trade, you know, limit plastic, virgin plastic production every year. You know, if you don't, if you're not allowed to make a huge amount of plastic, then you have to figure out ways to find alternatives. And I think that's, that's a good market driver to help shift us away from a plastics driven economy. We also, you know, like stopping subsidies for, for oil and gas. You know, the petrochemical sector is a um, part of the oil and gas industry and, and they currently get subsidised heavily to be able to produce these products without internalising the costs of environmental impacts or human health impacts and, and social impacts of plastic pollution. 
But I think it's also critical that we, we need to formalise cleanup. There is already a lot of plastic in the environment. There is going to be a lot more plastic in the environment over the next couple of years until we can actually get, you know, production standards and limits on plastic manufacturing. So we need to have systematic and, cl- uh, and, and formalised cleanups um, that that get ma- like the big pieces of plastic out of the environment before they become <clears throat> microplastics and cause other issues for, for wildlife and for people. Wow. That sounds like a revolution on all levels. Yes. That's a huge transformation she's describing there. And it needs to start now and on all levels. So I guess trying to reduce our plastic footprint at home is a good first step, but we also need to rally for stronger policies and for international coordination, holding producers accountable. This was The Plastosphere with Anya Kriga and Brooke Bowman. Huge thanks to Stephanie Burrell, Kate Nelson, Shia Sue, and Dorian, Louisa, and Lisa Bryan for the recipe for oat milk. If you'd like to make your own barista oat milk, check out the bonus track to this episode. Now that we shared our recipes, we're also really curious about your hacks to tackle plastic pollution. So send us your favorite ones. If we get enough submissions, we might publish them on the Plastosphere feed. Yes, we'd love to hear your ideas from zero waste to collective action. Just find a quiet place and start the Voice Memo app on your smartphone. Record a voice message for us and send it to Anya via email. She's Anya at plastosphere.earth. That's A-N-J-A at plastosphere.earth. You can also find me as at plastosphere.pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The music in this episode was composed by Dorian Roy and Blue Dot Sessions. That's it. Thank you, Brooke. Yes, thanks, Anya. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Take care, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.